This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The CDC has been criticized during the pandemic for back-and-forth information, now apparently taking a firm stance on masks. They say, yes, wear them to protect other people, but also wear them to protect yourself. So we will talk about that. Doctors have been worried since the start of the pandemic that hospitals could be filled beyond capacity with COVID patients that worry closer than ever to reality. So the bad news is more people are in the hospitals. Now, Mm. the good news is that doctors seem to have learned how to save more lives. We'll tell you what they've learned. And we'll look into what's next for all the vaccine candidates out there now that Pfizer has announced some really positive results. First, though, masks and the CDC. Dr. Monica Gandhi is with us, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco Health. So, doctor, we've had you on before talking about masks. You've studied this and talked to us about how it's not just about the other guy. It's about me as well, protecting myself. We have been actually trying to talk about this since June, maybe. So, you know, it's just been six months. But um, yes, I completely agree that we have actually been talking to the CDC and our group and others about messaging this differently, messaging that masks protect others, which is how they messaged up till yesterday, but also that masks protect you because it is just human nature um, that people are going to be more likely to enact a public health intervention if they think it's protecting themselves. And we thought the data was accumulative, accumulating, was getting stronger, and then finally they put it all together and put out this message yesterday. Okay. So, like you said, only took six months, but at least we're here. A <laughs> um, couple of things on the wearing of it to protect you, right? Because there's, there's different routes. Number one is the obvious. Put something in between you and the other guy, and it probably helps. Uh, the other yep. one is something that we also talked to you about, which is maybe, and here's the theory, that you just get a little bit of it through. A little bit of virus gets into you, and then your body starts to work, and you can maybe develop some immunity that way instead of getting, you know, full-blown virus and having a real tough time of it. Yes, that is something that our group and others have been talking about, um, but we really believe it, and we believe that there is increasing data for this theory. So not just that mass block virus and you don't get it at all, But if some happens to slip in, that uh, because masks don't actually block every single virus and you get infected, that you'll have a more mild infection. And then on top of that, there's lots and lots of data coming out, including literally almost every couple of days, about that even with mild and asymptomatic infection, you can develop immunity to the virus. So it's a form of maybe increasing our immunity if you have to be out anyway. If you're out That's the other thing is that it's been so long uh, into this pandemic that lockdowns are very difficult. And in fact, the CDC very clearly stated in their guidelines yesterday that lockdowns are terrible for the economy and wearing a mask is better. So if you have to be out um, and you're out with your mask, then why not um, either get a mild infection or no infection at all? So a lot of uh, since this whole pandemic began. A lot has been made about antibodies, testing for antibodies, and I was reading uh, earlier that I think there's at least one company that, that is trying to design a easy uh, test for T-cells. Uh, why would that potentially be important? Yeah, that is really exciting. This was uh, actually a paper that was published out of England yesterday or a couple of days ago, and just to like briefly explain that, there are two ways that the immune system works, through two arms. Just think of it as two arms. 
One is your antibody response, which comes from B cells, and one is your T cell response. And antibodies we're measuring because they're cheap and everyone and their brother is doing a study on antibody and seroprevalence and how many antibodies in the population because it's cheap. But what's harder to do is measure T cells. But T cells are actually probably what give you longer lasting and true immunity to uh, the COVID-19 virus. But they're really hard to measure. They take research labs. It's really expensive. You have to collect cells a certain way. And so what this study in England showed us yesterday is kind of a simpler T-cell assay, one that we've uh, been using for TB, um, was great in predicting who had T-cells to the virus. And in fact, it totally corresponded to who was out with a mask in the world, um, you know, doing essential work, firefighters, doctors, uh, grocery store workers, they looked at essential workers. And even when they didn't have antibodies, 14% of them had T-cells, which means you probably snuck in some virus got an asymptomatic infection, didn't even know it, um, and uh, got some immunity. And in fact, it was those who had antibodies that were more likely to have the symptoms of disease. So it does indicate this kind of theory that maybe you're getting immunity by being out there with your mask. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, University of California, San Francisco Health. Hospitals across the country nervous if they'll be able to handle a wave of coronavirus patients this winter that could have them in danger of exceeding capacity. Nearly 62,000 people are in the hospital in the U.S. with the disease, and that is a record. Record could be shattered in the next month or two. Looks much more dire than what we saw during the spring and the summer surges. Dr. Janice Orlowski is the chief health officer for the Association of American Medical Colleges. So, doctor, what does it look like over the next few months? The numbers are surging and we are seeing um, increase in cases primarily in the Midwest. We are seeing them in the West, Utah, um, uh, Oregon uh, certainly is going up. Um, the other thing is, as we review the numbers, we're starting to see the numbers go up in Vermont, in New Hampshire, in Maine, uh, in New York as well. So we're seeing um, increase in cases across the United States. The worrisome thing about this increase is that um, we had 9 million cases of COVID in the United States 10 days ago. So we've we've gone up a million cases in 10 days. And that is a, a remarkably short uh, amount of time. And it just tells you the amount of uh, disease we have within the community. We've not seen a million cases occur that fast. Now, some people will say that um, it's because we have increased testing and we do have increased testing, but we also are seeing the highest number of positive tests uh, in the United States. And so it's likely that um, we just have COVID uh, everywhere that's increasing. Yeah, I, I wanted to be actually, I'm glad you are making that distinction because I want to be really clear with people listening because there is a difference and sometimes the media, we use it interchangeably. There is a difference, is there not, between uh, having a, a, a positive result showing that you uh, have been infected with the coronavirus and having COVID-19, which is the disease that the virus causes, not every one of those people who have tested positive get sick, right? That is correct. We are finding that there are, you know, what are called asymptomatic uh, individuals. Um, they probably do have some symptoms. They might be a little achy, might run a low-grade fever, but but they're really not aware of it. They have a really low-grade um, to no uh, amount of disease. And yes, when we talk about hospitalizations, 
we're talking about um, those individuals who are getting sick enough that they're not able to care from, uh, for themselves at home. And you might remember uh, in the spring, we didn't know this disease. We didn't know how to treat it. We didn't know what was going on. We've gotten smart um, over the last seven months. We, we really are, are better. There's a lot more that we have to learn, but we are um, able to care for more people at home. We're able to uh, have them do self-care, have them uh, have others take care of them at home. So, so when we say that the hospitals are being overrun, you have to realize that we are hospitalizing um, only those people who really, really need to see to have services, and that number of cases is going up uh, tremendously. So it's just a math game. I mean, you get more cases. There's going to be a share that are going to wind up in the hospital, no matter what you do. They're going to have a tough case of this, and there's only so many beds to go around. So what's a hospital to do when they start to close in on, especially like you can't just create more ICU beds. It's not just a bed in the hallway. There are people that run the bed care that's at an incredibly high level. Right, right. So what I would tell you is that um, there's two things that can be done. First of all, it's it's very hard for rural and community hospitals to surge, um, although they can. Uh, somewhat. They can use a an operating room or a recovery um, bed where they might have had someone who's really sick. So, you know, beds that might be called something different, but uh, are used for ICU. But a lot of times in rural and community hospitals, you don't have enough people. In the larger hospitals, um, what uh, it, mostly in urban areas, but not all, what we're doing is we are making more ICUs. We're making more um, ICUs. We are putting, you know, tents out. We are uh, in Milwaukee. They have a um, uh, a building on the state fairgrounds that they're using. So we are trying to expand our ICU capacity. But but even with that, there is a limit to the number of people. You know, how many nurses? How many doctors? Uh, how much care can we give? So. So we are starting to see in a number of these cases where our resources are um, hitting maximum. You know what some people are really afraid of? They're afraid that they or their loved ones are going to be hospitalized. And because the hospitals are really up against the wall with so many people now, that very uncomfortable choices are going to have to be made about who gets certain treatments. That's what people are scared out about. Should they be? Well, I would tell you, in the United States, we continue to have resources. We continue to try and, and uh, you know, give as great a patient care as possible. I would tell you what we would do before we would make those choices. But, and, and we are seeing this. We're decreasing the number of elective cases. We're saying, okay, no more ambulatory care. We're going to take all the nurses and, or you know, a good portion of those nurses and bring them into the hospital. We're going to cut down on our outpatient surgery and bring those surgeons in. So there's a, a lot of ways that we can say we're going to stop doing some kind of less urgent surgery or less urgent care and bring people in. So I, it, there is flexibility in the system, but things are getting um, 
pretty pretty constrained in a number of places. You know, I've talked to the people in Utah, and they are taking their you know their their critical care doctors and nurses are so overstressed that they're taking their anesthesia um, physicians and and saying we're going to do less less anesthesia in the operating room and we need these docs up in the critical care um, uh, towers. So you you see a lot of movement, a lot of um, attempts to try to flex as as much as possible. Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Health Officer of the Association of American Medical Colleges. As Dr. Orlowski said, hospitals now are much better equipped to treat coronavirus patients. There are more drug treatments, which have shown pretty good results. More people going into the hospital now compared to earlier this year. So the hope is that with the treatments, more are going to walk out. Dr. Chris Colbert is an ER doctor and assistant program director of the emergency medicine program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He talked to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about treating patients that do go to the hospital. There's a whole lot that we have learned from March to now. Um, we are having different resources for providing oxygen as well as accommodating the abnormal vitals as in positioning of the patients, medications as well, you, the use of steroids, the use of antiviral medications. We're starting to implement that in our practice, which is honestly having really, really, really good effects on the patients and with patient outcome. Is that allowing people to go home from the hospital sooner? Maybe things just don't get so severe. I mean, what what ends up happening with the newer treatments? So great question. It's twofold. Number one, you don't want your patients ideally to transition from a general medical floor to a critical care bed. Um, So we're seeing a significant decrease in the transition from patients transitioning from um, kind of bad to worse with our new medications, number one. And coupled with that, we are able to send some patients home that were questionable before in early March with different monitoring devices that we send patients home with. Now, mind you, not every hospital has these resources for their patients, so it does depend upon what hospital you have as well. But across the board, emergency medicine rooms are using different techniques and more modified techniques to have better patient outcome. So what's the advice as a doctor who is seeing patients in the ER? uh, What's the advice to people out there as as a lot of people around the holidays going to want to be getting together with family and friends? So our recommendation is, in fact, 2020 is not the the big family get together. This is the immediate family. um, Have a nice time. Do not travel house to house during Thanksgiving and Christmas, which most people usually do. Just Keep it inside, have a really good meal, watch some really good football, but keep the numbers low. And if you do invite individuals to your home, don't have 10 people at a table. Um, Have two different tables and spread those numbers out Um, in adjoining rooms or closed rooms. Have a table for four people, have a table for another um, amount of individuals as well. You want to keep the space as best as you possibly can. And uh, when it comes to someone who uh, finally does come down with this or it starts exhibiting symptoms, is there anything that they can do at home before they head to the hospital that can make it so the outcome is better for them? My recommendation is always communicate with the physician. Um, So much of this virus depends on the patients. You can be 24 years old and have asthma, and that's totally different than a 24-year-old who does not have asthma. It's uh, my recommendation is always to communicate with the physician just to make sure you're doing what is best for you and your outcome. Thanks so much for all the latest info. That's Dr. Chris Colbert, an ER doctor. Coming up after this short break, how many different coronavirus vaccines will we actually have?
You probably know by now that Pfizer says its coronavirus vaccine is more than 90 percent effective. Now, that's given us all hope that we can finally beat back this virus soon. What about the other guys, the other candidates, and what is next for Pfizer? Dr. Susan Ellenberg is a professor of biostatistics and epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. She talks to KYW's Charlotte Reese about Pfizer's vaccine and the other candidates. There's a huge amount of interest, obviously, in vaccines against uh, against this infection. So it's natural that there would be, a, you know, a great interest in hearing any any early results. Um, what what these companies do is they have outside committees reviewing the data as they accumulate, so that if something looks really ready to go even before the planned end of the trial. They can do that. So, for example, in a drug trial, if you were treating, had a drug for a serious fatal disease, uh, and you went all the way to the end of the trial, and you found that you had 200 people who died on one arm and three people who died on the other arm, people might say, why didn't you stop this earlier? You know, couldn't you see what was going on? But to protect and make sure that the trial is conducted in the most unbiased manner, companies have this outside committee, this independent committee looking, and that's apparently what happened. They reviewed these data this particular time, and I don't know whether they reviewed it earlier, but this particular time they found very, very high level of efficacy, and I haven't seen safety data. I don't know whether they have put forward safety data, but I've got to assume that they that committee did not see anything in the safety data that would have caused them to have doubts about the benefit-risk balance. There's always going to be a certain amount of adverse events with any medical product, including vaccines, but they clearly believe that the benefits far outweighed the risk, and that's why they released the results to the company who then released the results to the world. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a lot of what was coming up, too, because it was these individual companies that were putting it out. And what's kind of like the next steps? Is there going to be more research behind that 90 percent efficiency rate? Well, I think they're going to continue to follow these people. You know, they, it's going to be a little while before the vaccine is going to be available to people. So I think they'll continue to follow these people so that in another month or so, they'll have a better estimate of efficacy. They are following, the FDA wants at least half the people in the trial to be followed for at least two months following the second dose of the vaccine to look for any concerning safety issues. So my understanding is, if I understood this right, when I heard the head of Pfizer talk about this yesterday, that they thought they would be at that point where half of the trial population would have uh, had at least two months of follow-up after the second vaccine. That would happen in about a week. And so maybe we'll see more safety data at that point, but they'll continue to follow so that eventually it won't take very much longer you know, to, before all of them will have had, had at least two months of follow-up, and we'll get a fuller idea of the, of the safety, which, which everybody is obviously interested in. These vac- any of these vaccines that prove to be effective you know, will be given to tens, hundreds, millions, maybe billions of people all around the world. So it, you know, the safety is very, very important. Right. And you keep saying two months. Is that protocol? Is that normal for a vaccine to then go to the next level, just a two month follow up? Well, nothing, nothing about this, these vaccines development is normal because of the rush. But the FDA stated a policy a few months ago that that's what they would expect, at least 
two months of follow-up after the second dose on half of the patients in the study on the grounds that they would expect the critical safety information to occur within the first uh, within the first two months. Mm. Do, what is like normal for that time period? I guess you know non-pandemic times. Well, in non-pandemic times, usually it takes much longer to run a vaccine trial. We are in a situation now where there are, you know, so much disease. It didn't take them very long. First of all, it didn't take them very long to enter thousands of tens of thousands of patients because people are very interested in this and they're willing both for their own sakes and I think, you know, altruistically, this is a worldwide pandemic and people do want to do what they uh, can do you know, to help get an answer. So they, they entered patients very rapidly. And then because of all the, the extensive spread, especially over the last month that we're hearing about going up and up and up, they were able to observe the required number of events very quickly. And that doesn't typically happen in vaccine trials. Often it takes, you know, maybe a year or two or even longer to observe enough outcomes to be able to make a judgment. And so by that time, you know, you've got a lot of safety information because you have followed people for a longer time. Here, everything is compressed. Mm-hmm. Right. But as you said, tons more people. What are your thoughts specifically on this Pfizer vaccine and maybe even other ones that are out there right now? I keep hearing that this one is the double dose. It's so different. What makes this particular vaccine interesting to people? Well, I think the, the, the thing that's most different or most interesting about it is that it uses a platform that hasn't been ever used for any marketed vaccine. So it's a brand new technology, which looks very, very promising. But of course, the proof is in the pudding. You need to see what it's doing. The fact that the data looks so promising is exciting because, because other of the manufacturers may also be using this platform. We'll have to see. Of course, they're not all identical. So, you know, we'll have to see one by one. But I know that, you know, I've heard commentators, you know, medical commentators on the news uh, saying that because this first one looks very, very effective, they're optimistic that others will be. And of course, we'll be much better off if we have multiple vaccine candidates that are effective because there's going to be a supply issue. The other interesting thing about the Pfizer vaccine that's going to be a challenge is the cold chain. The fact that this needs to be stored and transported at very, very low temperatures. I think it's minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And, And that is going to be a challenge. Doable probably in developed countries, more difficult in developing countries. And we'll even see how effectively this can be transported and stored even here. So that will be, my guess is, that Pfizer won't be the predominant vaccine used in developing countries. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. They've they've been working very hard on methods to transport it and provide adequate storage. So, you know. That's a great point. I mean, even um, Governor Murphy in New Jersey was saying how he's going to need federal funding in order to transport. It's it's so kind of futuristic sounding. Can you kind of break that down maybe a little bit more how they're actually going to get this vaccine out of the lab and into the market? Right. That that's I mean it's going to be a challenge, but I guarantee you this is not the first second that they've thought about that. This is something they've been working on throughout their whole development process. 
And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. They, they have said, I believe, that they, they think they'll have, I don't know how many million, I can't remember how many millions of doses available by the end of this year, but they thought by next spring they would have a billion doses available mm-hmm. for distribution. So they're optimistic about being able to get this out. Those who get sick aren't the only ones getting hit hard by the pandemic. The U.K. education watchdog says some young children have forgotten how to eat with a knife and fork, and others have regressed into diapers as the coronavirus pandemic takes a toll on young people's learning. A new report says some of the children most affected by disruption of the pandemic were those in their earliest years of education with working parents who experienced the kind of double whammy of less time with parents and less time with other children. Among older children, some had fallen behind in math and struggled with literacy and their ability to concentrate. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We'll be back tomorrow. 